Hey everybody, how's it going? This is Hub and welcome back to another episode of Tighten Up the Defense, a podcast that would likely benefit from a tagline. As I believe I just mentioned, I'm Hub and I hope you're having a fine whenever the heck it is you're listening to this. Got to watch a solar eclipse the other day. That's something I don't get to do every day. I wasn't actually able to make good on my plan to find a small mountain town and convince the inhabitants that I was in fact a wizard. But, you know, maybe next time. Anyway, I'm going to dispense with most of the introduction here because, man, we've got a giant size episode to match the giant size special we've been covering. And I'm just going to say me and Corey didn't have no drinks while we were recording it. So it might get a little bit rambly. I apologize for that. Try to keep these generally under or around an hour, and I don't think that's going to be possible with this one. Man, 80 pages is so many pages. Tell you what, without any further ado, let's ado this. Today's synopsis rhyme is submitted by Lucas Brown. Wolverine's not a tall guy, but Cyclops is. Bump your head on the doorway of a synopsis. Synopsis. Thanks, Lucas. Giant-sized Defenders number 1. July, 1974. The Way We Were. Written by Tony Isabella. Drotted by Jim Starlin. With inks by Al Milgram. Defensive lineup. Valkyrie. Clea. The Hulk. Namor. Doctor Strange. So this story takes place in the few minutes between the Defenders fighting Zemnu, the Space Yeti slash children's television host back in Defenders number 12 and the beginning of Defenders number 13 when a certain bird-beaked billionaire shows up in Steve's den with news of an important real estate opportunity. For further details on those stories, be sure to check out Tighten Up the Defense episodes 36 and 38. Valkyrie the Hulk and Doctor Strange show up at Steve's sanctorum which scares an old rummy who is hanging out in the alley so bad that he swears off the hooch forever. Val asks Doctor Strange if he wants to wipe the guy's memory, but for once, Steve declines, probably on the grounds that that would ruin the classic cinema trope where a drunk sees something weird, then promises to never touch the sauce again. Good for you, Steve. Preservation of historic comedic cliches is such an important cause. This is on track to be the first generation in history to have fewer spit takes than our parents and pie fights are at an all-time low. And guess what I'm saying is, millennials are ruining the hackneyed gag industry. The gang heads inside where Wong has been preparing a feast for the returning heroes. As Hulk and Strange head inside to get their grub on, Val hangs back to make small talk with Clea, Doctor Strange's disciple-slash-girlfriend, which is a kind of unsettling combination. Val casually mentions that she wishes she knew her relatively new teammates a little bit better, rather than share a funny story, or suggest that they get a drink sometime and talk things over, Clea's like, well, using this strange and eldritch tome, I can cast a spell that will let you relive events from their past. How's about that? Val says, yes, please. And with that, we launch into a reprint of a story that first appeared in The Incredible Hulk number 3. Banished to Outer Space. September 1962. Written by Stan Lee, drotted by Jack Kirby, with inks by Dick Ayers. Back in 1962, Bruce Banner turned into the Hulk whenever it got dark out and changed back when the sun rose. So, Bruce decided to employ werewolf protocols on himself and lock himself in a specially designed bunker every night until his hulkiness wore off. Pretty solid plan. 
The only problem was, Bruce decided to give the key to his old buddy Rick Jones, the teenage delinquent musician. Damn it, Bruce. Within minutes of locking his scientist pal into the bunker and promising not to unlock it until daybreak, Rick gets picked up by some army dudes and taken to meet with the Hulk's archenemy, General Thaddeus Thunderbolt Ross. Ross is like, Hey Rick, trick your pal the Hulk into getting into this rocket so he can shoot him into space. Rick responds, No way, he'd hate that. Space is the worst. The general counters, Nuh-uh, we'd bring him right back, honest. It's just for, um, patriotic science reasons. Rick goes, Oh, patriot and science are nice words that are good. Okie dokie. Hey, if we got married, my name would be Rick Ross. Okay, he didn't say that last part, but it totally would be. Rick Jones does as General Ross asks. He lets the Hulk out of his bunker, gets the Green Goliath to chase him, and tricks him into getting onto the spaceship. A delighted Thunderbolt Ross fires the Hulk into orbit and starts celebrating. Rick Jones is like, Okay, cool. Now you're going to bring him back, right? General Ross goes, No way, you stupid idiot. I hate the Hulk. Remember how I'm his arch enemy? Now that big dumb green fuck lives in space, and there's nothing you can do about it. (laughs) Anyway, I'm going home and leaving you alone in this room that has the controls to the Hulk's rocket in it. Mind locking up for me after I go? Thanks, dumbass. Then he goes home. For some reason, trusting Rick not to push the bring Hulk home button on the control panel. Good move, Thaddeus. I can see why you get put in charge of national security. So, yeah, Rick pushes the button. Hooray! And when he does so, some good old-fashioned comic book science happens. See, as Rick is disobediently button-pushing, the Hulk's spaceship is getting hit with some kind of cosmic radiation, which travels electrically through space and goes down into the control panel that Rick is using and gives him the same radiation that the Hulk is getting. Because science! And probably patriotism. Anyway, Hulk crashes back on Earth and smashes his way out of his busted-up rocket. The enraged Jade Giant is understandably upset at his purported pal's recent behavior, and is about to express his displeasure by killing the shit out of the easily duped delinquent. Oh no! A terrified Rick Jones yells for the Hulk to stop, and is amazed that the Hulk immediately does so. What gives? Well, it turns out that what gives is that the space radiation malarkey that scienced up the Hulk and Rick so good somehow mind-linked them or something, and now the Hulk has to obey Rick's commands. Because science! And, you know, probably patriotism. Why not? Rick tests out his new Svengali-like hold over the Emerald Avenger by running the Hulk through some calisthenics. Rick, you monster. The aerobics-instructing adolescent further humiliates his formerly furious frenemy by making the monstrous mind-controlee give him a piggyback ride home. Whee! The tale of telepathic teenage tyranny ends with Rick locking the Hulk back in his werewolf protocol bunker and wondering whether his mental mastery over the Hulk will last. Spoiler, it won't. So, back in Stephen Strange's Sanctum Sanctorum, The Golden Girls are huddled around their cheesecake, reminiscing about the good times they've shared and wondering whether Blanche is going to sell the Miami home where they live to a wealthy Japanese businessman. Oh, wait. Sorry. Wrong clip show. Rose, I mean Clea, asks Val if she enjoyed her voyeuristic stroll through her non-teammate's traumatic past. Val solemnly replies, Yeah, yeah, yeah. Namor next. Namor next. 
Meanwhile, in the dining room next door, the Hulk is going to town on a giant turkey leg, Henry VIII style. By which I mean he's eating it messily, not marrying it and then having it executed so he can marry another turkey leg, then founding the Church of England. Although I would totally read a comic book where that happened. Suddenly, the Hulk vanishes into thin air, leaving his half-eaten drumstick to fall on the floor. Oh no. Wong worked really hard to prepare that feast. Oh, and also I hope the Hulk is okay. In the other room, Clea starts her incantation to send Val off on a tourism trek through Namor's distant past. The past-probing prestidigitator thinks she feels a mystical power surge affecting her spell, but decides to shrug it off as probably nothing. Yeah, that's pretty much the attitude towards magically tampering with the fabric of the cosmos one would expect from Stephen Strange's disciple. Anyway, Val starts sorcerously spying on a teenage Namor. We join in her voyeurism as we read this tale originally printed in Submariner Comics number 41. Bird of Prey, August 1955. Written by Bill Everett. Drotted by Bill Everett. With inks by Bill Everett. A 17-year-old Namor is zipping around the skies having a blast and berating his sea-bound fellow Atlanteans for their pathetic inability to fly. Nice. Suddenly, the arrogant aquatic adolescent is attacked by what he believes to be a giant bird. The giant bird in question is super noisy, made of metal, has a propeller, and has a big old swastika painted on the side. Man, I always knew there was a reason I didn't like birds. Stupid racist metal birds. Namor tears the tail off the offending alleged avian and sends it crashing to the ground below. The explosive metal eggs it was attempting to lay as it flew cause a massive detonation blowing up the bird and the ground where it landed and knocking the 17-year-old sovereign of the seven seas silly. When Namor regains consciousness, his mom, the queen, is super proud of him and informs him that the giant metal bird was in fact a Nazi airplane. What? When the plane crashed, its bombs, which Namor thought were eggs, blew up the airbase it had been launched from. Hooray! A chastened Namor admits to Queen Mom that he had thought he was fucking with some jerkhole of a bird. When he realizes that he could have been killed, Namor feels pretty silly and vows that from then on, he would always be humble about his amazing abilities. And from that day forward, Namor has always been a paragon of humility. Hooray! Back in the 70s, Valkyrie is delighted to have learned the origin of the Submariner's legendary modesty. Clea asks if she's up for more temporal spelunking through her non-teammate's private pasts. Val's up for it, so Clea does some more mystical malarkey and sends the Scandinavian swordslinger sojourning through the memories of Dr. Stephen Strange. In the dining room next door, the sorcerer in question has just figured out that Clea must be using the Book of Vishanti to enable Valkyrie's temporal tourism. That's not great news to Steve, because what Clea doesn't realize is that the Book of Vishanti doesn't just reveal the past. It makes it live again. Also, it's written in the passive voice, and he uses endnotes instead of footnotes. Oh no. Like the Hulk, Stephen Strange vanishes into thin air. Oblivious to the book's metaphysical and literary flaws, Clea continues to weave her spell, allowing us and Valkyrie to probe Strange's memories as we read a reprint of a story from Strange Tales number 145. To Catch a Magician, June 1966. 
Written by Stan Lee and Denny O'Neill, and drawn by Steve Ditko. A creepy-ass bald magician just stole some state secrets from an unnamed European country and is hiding out in New York. The follicle-free fiend goes by the name Mr. Rasputin, and is a descendant of the historical Rasputin. Not unlike his difficult-to-dispatch ancestor, Mr. Rasputin is pretty into the idea of running things. Really? You got designs on world domination, and the honorific you chose is Mr.? Way to aim for the stars, buddy. The modestly monikered magical scion of the Mad Monk holds up in a studio apartment and starts practicing a spell called The Illusions of Icon, as near as I can tell, just for funsies. Unfortunately for Mr. Rasputin, Doctor Strange is floating around nearby and can sense that the apparently forbidden spell is being performed. Using the subtlety and discretion he is renowned for, Steve apparates in front of the Machiavellian mage and yells, Who are you and what are you doing? Mr. Rasputin introduces himself and launches a mystical attack at his interloping interrogator. The two mages engage in a good old-fashioned wizard's duel. Despite being kind of sleepy from some recent adventures, Steve is winning handily. Hooray! So Mr. Rasputin pulls out a gun and shoots Steve in the tummy. Ah, snap! An injured Steve floats himself into the window of a nearby hospital. The doctors get him to surgery immediately, and a few hours later, Strange is recovering from his wounds in a hospital bed. The convalescing conjurer sends his astral self off, searching for his assailant. Turns out the weapon-wielding wizard in question is squatting in Steve's own sanctum sanctorum. The Slavic sorcerer hires a gangster to go to the hospital and finish Doctor Strange off, and then starts poking through Steve's magic stuff. Oh no! With the power of those spells and incantations, Mr. Rasputin could take over the world! Also, and perhaps more importantly, I don't think Steve had a chance to clear his sorceress browser history on the Orb of Agamotto. Mr. Rasputin probably won't understand that Steve was only visiting those sites for, for research. Fortunately, Steve's astral form pops in before Rasputin has a chance to learn many of Strange's strange secrets, sorceress or otherwise. Steve summons his cloak of levitation and has it choke the shit out of the home-invading enchanter. Hooray! Way to go, cloak! The heroic garment drags the unconscious Mr. Rasputin back to Steve's hospital room. Steve pops his astral form back into his body and finds that while he was out, the hired gun came into the room to kill him, but Steve's amulet hypnotized him and froze his mind to forestall the murderous intent it sensed. Damn, Steve. That's one hell of a wardrobe you're sporting. So, so far the tally versus villains is Doctor Strange, the Sorcerer Supreme of the Universe, zero. His outfit, two. Steve places a hypnotic spell on Mr. Rasputin and his hired gunman and orders them to turn themselves over to the authorities. Then he goes to sleep in his hospital bed, having learned a valuable lesson. Always do your mystical web searches using a private browser in your Orb of Agamotto. Can't stress this enough. Back in the present of 1974, Clea's spell is forcing Hulk, Namor, and Doctor Strange to confront manifestations of the foes from their past that we just read about. Namor is fighting it out with Nazi fighter planes, which he now realizes are not, in fact, birds. Doctor Strange is confronted by the shadowy form of a gun-wielding evil sorcerer, and the Hulk is battling, um, loneliness, I guess? Oh, also they're all in space for some reason. Okay, sure. Things aren't going super great for our heroes. Strange transports them all to some kind of cosmic weirdo dimension or something, but they're still battling their memories, and Mr. Rasputin's avatar has shot Strange again. 
Things seem pretty grim, and strange voices concern that unless they do something quickly, he could die from his wounds. Oh, shit. Then Steve tells them that if they all concentrate, they can just go home and everything will be fine. So they do that. Wait, what? Seriously? They don't even have to click their ruby shoes together or anything? They just go, eh, I'm tired of this shit, and that's that? Boo! Clea says she's sorry, and Steve says, That's cool, just don't do it again. Val says that she's glad shit went down the way it did because she learned a lot about her teammates. And friendship. They all sit down around the table and finish their cheesecake. Blanche decides not to sell the house to the Japanese businessman after all. Hooray! And that's that. Except we also get an unrelated Silver Surfer reprint from the Fantastic Four Annual number 5 that they don't even make an attempt to tie into the already flimsy clip show narrative. Okay, fair enough. The Peerless Power of the Silver Surfer, November 1967. Written by Stan Lee, drawn by Jack Kirby. Defensive lineup, The Silver Surfer. Norrin Rad, The Silver Surfer, is flying around with a bunch of ducks. Apparently, the shiny metal surfboard rider is mistaken for one of his avian acquaintances. Does Teenage Namor fly up and rip his tail off? I wish. Nah, some duck hunters shoot at him. Man, people in the Marvel Universe are terrible at bird recognition. The surfer sends a cosmic blast in the direction the shots were fired from, scaring the shit out of the hunters. Then he starts waxing poetically judgmental, and opines that in all the universe, only humans are shitty enough to hunt for sport. Really, dude? Look, I'm with you on humans sucking and all. With the possible exception of geese, humans are the worst. But in all the universe, we're the only ones who sport hunt? Uh, dude, Kree, Skrull, Thanos, and, oh, I don't know, cats? Anyway, Norrin can sense an anguished soul nearby, so he pops into a nearby secret lab to check things out. He finds Quasimodo, a super emo sentient supercomputer with a really gross-looking face. Quasimodo was built and subsequently abandoned by the Fantastic Four villain, the Mad Thinker. Since his abandonment, Quasi has been whining his non-existent butt off and praying to be turned into a real boy. Well-programmable Pinocchio, you're in luck, because old Norrin decides to get his blue fairy on and grant your wish. The Silver Surfer uses his power cosmic to give the angst-ridden computer a humanoid body, because that's a thing he can apparently do. And not just anybody, a super-powerful, destructive body for some reason that is also a total uggo. Weird decisions all around, dude. Quasimodo is stoked to be able to move around, but also disappointed to be so gross-looking. Oh, and one more thing. Surprise! He's totally evil. Ha ha ha! He blasts the shit out of the Silver Surfer and informs him that he was created to destroy. Quasimodo is short for quasi-motivational destruct organ. What a nonsense string of words! Makes hierarchy of international vengeance and eliminations almost seem like a reasonable acronym. Almost. The newly limbed, nonsense-nicknamed computer Kool-Aid mans his way out of the lab and starts blowing shit up. Surfer fights him for a while, but then he gets sick of that. The disgusting-looking difference engine gives a little speech about how he's the best and is totally going to rule the world and also blow it up or something. So, the Silver Surfer uses his power cosmic to turn Quasimodo into an ugly-ass statue of a clock. 
For real. He does that. Man, the power Cosmic makes Mastery of Magnetism look like a finite power set. Almost. And joining us once again is my good-for-many-things brother, Corey. Corey, how are you doing? I am okay. How are you? I am doing okay as well. We had a bit of a miscue, did we not? I read a lot of comics today. (laughs) (laughs) We are today covering Giant Size Defenders number one. Unfortunately, Corey first read Giant Size Defenders number two when we were preparing for this and then had to go back and reread the correct comic. I appreciate the extra work, Corey. No problem. So, once you've got around to reading Giant Size Defenders number one, what'd you think? It is amazing how much characters change over the course of their histories. Yeah. The oldest comic that was reprinted in this issue was the Submariner one. Mm -hmm. And that was from probably about close to 20 years before the comic book we're reviewing came out. Other than that, all of the other three stories were pretty much within around 10 to 12 years from when this was published. Some of them only like six years ago. Hmm. And the comics looked and felt so very different. Yep. Like, I think pretty much you could pick up a comic from 10 years ago today. And I'm sure I'm not as familiar with modern comics. There are some differences, certainly. But there are some that if this came out, 2008 comic came out today, if I hadn't read it before, I wouldn't know when it came out. Mm -hmm. These, they feel so different. What did you think of the interstitial story that kind of tied things together in a weird clip show way? Uh, I think it had some issues. I felt like its point, like, especially with gender stuff, was, like, ladies are there for boobs and making mistakes, was, like, <laughs> yeah. basically what it said. That is a very succinct way to look at that, yeah. I appreciate the framework of Val is new to the team and she wants to learn more about her teammates, but removing her from the story and we don't find anything about her past, I know that she's a newer character when this came out, so she doesn't have the rich backstory that they do there is a different way to go about that than this and that it was all clea's big mistakes messing things up Mm -hmm. also really highlighted the fact that jim starlin wonderful artist i really appreciated the art in this the art was very good in the interstitial story but for specifically the depictions of clea and val very lascivious (laughs) Mm -hmm. it reminds me of did you see the thing where It was a a funny thing going around on the internet maybe last year of if male characters were drawn the way that female characters are. Yeah, yeah. It totally reminded me of that, like Thor sticking his ass out. Like, these (laughs) these two ladies are drawn in a way that... Yeah, if you replace them with Thor and Doctor Strange, Mm -hmm. and they were both... I now really want to see that, (laughs) because almost every time they are shown in this issue, Val and Clea are doing this weird thing where they are arching their backs pointing their boobs at each other, and then facing the panel and kind of side-eyeing each other as they have a conversation. Mm -hmm. And it's really weird looking. I mean, they're pretty. Confrontational boob off. Yeah, but we need to see their pretty faces, so those will be facing the panel as well. And they're just kind of trying to look at each other through their peripheral vision, but it makes it look like, I don't trust you not to look at my boobs. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it is a very weirdly drawn series of panels. There are also some issues with the storytelling in the interstitial bit. It didn't really hold together. Like, it didn't really make sense as a plot that tied the three stories together. And also you get the fact that it's such a loose framework that ties the three stories together. I just kept thinking like, okay, I guess they knew they had 80 pages to fill. Because you get like a three-page Namor story, a pretty long 
Doctor Strange story mm-hmm. and a medium-sized Hulk story. And then a giant Silver Surfer story. And then story. a big it, Silver Surfer no story. Stir- yeah, but the Silver Surfer one is just like, they didn't even try to tie that into like the nope. very loose narrative structure, which they could have super easily. Because no, he's not a member of the team at that point, but also at the point where the story takes place, neither is Namor. Mm-hmm. There's no reason not to include him in it in the same way. Clea could just be like, I'm also curious about the Silver Surfer. What about him? Well, it would have broken her ability to use the uh, alliterative monster, monarch, and mage thing. Okay, there's got to be an M word that can describe Silver Surfer. Monster, monarch, mage, and... Master of Silver Surfing. (laughs) There we go. All right. Uh, Mobius illustrated him in the 80s. (laughs) Yeah, see? So there's a way she could have worked that in. Mm. That aside... I actually kind of enjoyed it. It was definitely a different take on Strange and the Hulk than we're used to seeing. It's written by Tony Isabella. The artwork is by Jim Starlin, and it is gorgeous. His depiction of the Hulk is weird because it's more goofily chummy in the way it's written by Isabella, Mm -hmm. but he's drawn really terrifyingly menacing by Starlin, Mm -hmm. and I kind of appreciated that. Mm -hmm. And also, Doctor Strange has, like, a weird floppy haircut in this. It looks kind of, like, weird and eldritch, but also just, like, emo as fuck. (laughs) And I kind of dug that, too. There is a fun bit at the beginning where there's an old rummy who's hanging out in the street, sees the Defender show up at Doctor Strange's house, and does the very cliched, I'm never drinking again. Mm-hmm. Uh, but the way it's executed is actually pretty fun. And Val's like, don't you want to wipe his mind, Doctor Strange? And he's basically like, normally I would, but in this case, I think it'll be funnier if I don't. Well, he doesn't like that the guy's a drunk. Sure, sure. He's a bit of a teetotaler himself. Oh, regular Volstad. What? I said a regular Volstad. What's that? Volstad, the congressman that penned the law that became the uh, 18th Amendment. Oh, I was thinking of Volstag from <laughs> the uh, Volstag the Voluminous from Thor comic books who loves to drink all the time. So I was a little bit confused. I wonder if that ever came up with the congressman. I, maybe. Maybe that's why I didn't want anybody to drink. Everybody He's made like, fun of him. I'm tired of being compared to Volstag the Voluminous. <laughs> it made me wonder, the fact that Namor was included in the story it seemed like he got written out of it at the last minute i wonder if tony isabella when he wrote the story was unaware of the fact that namor was off the team at the time when this story supposedly takes place because he really seemed to have been hastily written out of it and then you know obviously reincorporated in the flashback thing but it was just kind of weird i don't know i thought it was abrupt but not out of character with the way that things usually end with the Defenders, where Namor's like, ah, fuck this shit again. Right. That, I suppose, is fair. Yeah, so what we're supposed to get out of the three stories, too, I think is like, okay, so Hulk is lonely, Namor used to be a badass dumbass. (laughs) (laughs) He was hilarious as a kid. He was, but he was also super badass and super dumbass. Thinks planes are birds. Yeah. Thinks bombs are eggs. Yeah. And that Doctor (laughs) Strange hates getting shot. Like, that's what we learn about these characters. Yep. The other thing that I did want to bring up real quick about the interstitial bits, which, okay, first of all, I would have liked the story even more if the story was that they all somehow got locked inside of a walk-in cooler and had to keep themselves warm and tell stories about each other, Mm. which happened in almost every 1970s and 80s sitcom clip show. 
Hmm. That was the structure for, off the top of my head, I remember it was in Archie's Bunker's Place, Happy Days, and Benson. But I know it was in, like, at least four or five others. I think Three's Company, they did that, too. Oh, shit. Where two characters who don't really get along mm-hmm. get locked in a walk-in cooler together and have to reminisce about things. Oh. And I would have loved it if that had been the structure of this story. But it wasn't. The timing is a little bit weird, because this takes place right after they fought Zemnu mm-hmm. the second time. Mm-hmm where it's just Val and the Hulk. And Hulk decided he was going to be friends with Doctor Strange after all. Right. Which they really lean on hard in the dialogue in this. Mm -hmm. Like, Hulk keeps being, friend, friend. And Doctor Strange is just like, what am I getting into? Hamana, hamana. Yeah, yep. What's weird about that is that's already, like, super tight timing. Because at the beginning of Defenders number 14, they're all hanging out in Strange's Sanctorum. And we find out, I remember commenting on it, I think it was with Miles at the time, they had been hanging out less than an hour after they fought Zemnu, and Doctor Strange has already bored the shit out of them with talking about, like, and then this happens, and they're like, we're just bored, we want some action. It's like, dude, you fought a space alien children's TV show host an hour ago. Now we find out that this extra story also takes place in the time, in the few hours between them fighting Zemnu and Nighthawk showing up at their house. Dang. That's an action-packed afternoon. Busy, busy. And a weird thing for them to just kind of forget to mention. Mm-hmm. All right, are you ready to get into the flashback segments? I hope so. Well, I think I got something that'll make us a little bit more ready. You do? In special preparation for this <laughs> special giant size issue, I figure we are going to need to have a giant size flight of Manhattans. Oh, shit. So... <laughs> There is a drink pairing for every flashback here. Ah, lovely. Most of them are provided by Lucas Brown of the delightful The Math of You podcast, where I was a guest. He invented three cocktails for me that were inspired by our conversation. And so three of those we have to match up with three of the flashbacks, and then there was a fourth one, so I made one as well. Oh, shit. Uh, So get your glass out. Okay. And I will pour you a Red Haven. Red Haven. Red Haven. And this is to pair with the Hulk flashback. This is not a small beverage. It is not. Some of the others are smaller. <laughs> Maybe. It's going to be an adventure. It's... So this is Scotch, Port, Sinar, and Peychaud's bitters. Curious. All right. Well. And the reason I chose uh, this one to pair with the Hulk story is it is called a Red Haven. This is the only one that Lucas didn't name himself. It is a actually traditional English cocktail, I believe. But... General Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt. Thunderbolt Ross. Yep. He is the bad guy in this. Mm -hmm. And he later turns into the Red Hulk. No shit. Yeah. Well, so. Here you go. Mm, Pretty good. Wow. That's weird that it goes down so smooth. And And then it's got like a nice like. Very boozy. Yeah. And it's got a nice aftertaste too. Mm -hmm. That's the scotch coming through there. There's a bit of smokiness to Mm -hmm. it. Very nice. Mm. So. What do you think of the Hulk story? I thought it was hilarious when the kid, I forget his name. His Rick name, Jones. Rick Jones got zapped from space satellite that allowed <laughs> him to mind control the Hulk. And the way that he figures this out is he's like, Hulk, raise your hand. Hulk, sit down. Hulk, give me a piggyback ride. <laughs> yep. <laughs> and well, specifically, the first thing he says is, Hulk, stop. And Hulk is about to kill him. Yep. And then Hulk decides not to kill him because, well, he doesn't decide. He's mind controlled. Yeah, so a couple of things. First of all... Electricity doesn't work that way. I'm pretty sure that is not the case. Also, I like 
General Thunderbolt so much better when he's hanging out with Jim Wilson in their apartment that I guess they live in together, getting high watching children's television the way they did in the earlier issues that we covered. Remember that? Oh shit, that was the guy? Yeah. <laughs> he's such a prick in this. I know. And he seemed like, like at least well-meaning in the other one. This time he's just a dick. Mm-hmm. Also, Rick Jones is a fucking dumbass. Mm-hmm. I don't know how you go from... I don't trust this general because he's with the military and they are out to hurt my best friend, the Hulk. Mm -hmm. He goes from that to then the general says, we need your help. He's like, no way. You're enemies with my friend, general. And the guy who he knows is from the military says, no, we need your help. It's for the U.S. military. He's like, oh, I didn't realize that. Okay, whatever you need, buddy. Well, he has a little bit of an internal struggle because he's like, he, he has a little thought montage where he's like, oh man, they really need to launch this rocket. How can I say no? Yeah, how can he? Mm. It's pretty easy. You just say no. Yep. I don't know where the Hulk is. Well, he can't. Yeah. He doesn't. He doesn't. He doesn't. The Hulk had him, like, werewolf him up real good in a bunker. It's like, I turn into the Hulk at night, which is not something I had known about the Hulk. I never knew that either. No, this is a reprint of the Hulk number three, uh, which was from 1962. And the Hulk has changed a lot since then. Yep, he still has some shoe attached in this Sure, he's still got some shirt attached, too. Mm -hmm. He also haircut. Oh, man. Yeah, I mean, the Hulk really doesn't have a great haircut throughout his career. This is the worst Hulk hair that I have seen. Honestly, I think the Hulk hair, as he was illustrated by Starlin in a couple of scenes, was maybe worse. There was one specifically where I was like, oh, he's got Blagojevich hair. Blagojevich. He was that uh, state senator from... Super corrupt guy, right? Yeah, yeah, but who had, like, the terrible, like... I don't even know what Rod Blagojevich looks like. Oh, man. You're in for a treat. We'll look it up later. Oh, goody. But he's got bad hair. Okay. And so does the Hulk. Got it. The Hulk is also way slower in this. Like, Rick Jones is like, I can easily outrun the Hulk because he's not very fast. In the same story, though, he leaps off of a mountain. So, like, he is very... Like, he can basically fly. He can jump so far. But he's also very slow moving. I mean, he's a very new character at this point, and they clearly ironed out some things about him. He's no longer controlled by Rick Jones. I don't know why they picked this story. It doesn't really seem like it was a story of loneliness even, so much as betrayal. The story was called Exiled in Outer Space. He was in outer space for like an hour. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, he got locked into a room at night, but he locked himself into that room at night. Must have sucked, but he's alone for a night. Maybe they picked it because that was the only story that ended with Hulk in space. And for the interstitial story to wind up, they all needed to appear in space together. At the I end. guess. I I didn't understand why they all went to space together. I guess you're right. That by would that maybe point, make I was just sense like, okay, that. fine. And that they solved the thing by like, the only way out of the situation is if we all decide we want to go home. Mm-hmm. It's like, oh, you guys didn't want to go home before? Yeah. That's why I said they really should have just been locked in a walk-in cooler. Yeah, General Ross is a prick. Rick Jones does his abrupt about-face on helping out General Ross. So for each of these flashback things, I was trying to figure out why they chose them. What do you think the moral of the story is? The moral of the Hulk story? Of the Hulk story, yeah. Oh man, that's a tough question. Don't kill people just because you're scared of them. Okay, don't kill people just because you're scared of them. Yeah. I think that's a good lesson. Thanks. (laughs) Thanks. <laughs> what did you have? <laughs> I'm going to change it to that. Oh, okay. <laughs> I was going to say, don't trust the military industrial complex. I oh, think that's a good story, too. Thing. Yeah, pretty much. Whew. 
Man, this is a strong drink. They are literally, all four of our drinks are all booze. It's a Manhattan is my favorite cocktail. Mine too. Good choice. Is there some uh, classy tumblers? Thank too? you. I'm a classy guy. Yeah. Like I said, it, it's weird. I feel like if they wanted a story about loneliness, they could have found a story that was about loneliness, which this story kind of wasn't. It definitely seemed more of a story about betrayal. Rick Jones is an interesting character. Were you at all familiar with him? Not at all. He's kind of the reason why Bruce Banner turned into the Hulk. He was like... Wait, he was driving a train high on coke... Oh, no, that's... That's Casey Jones. That's his dad. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> Got it. Oh, boy. Grateful Dead reference. Yeah. <laughs> Caught it in one, too. Do you know why I initially got into the Grateful Dead? Uh, their artwork looked pretty badass. Was yeah, I that, I thought they were a metal band. <laughs> I did too. I had a pin on my jean jacket. It was the Grateful Dead Egypt tour, and it was like a sphinx with a skull face. Uh-huh. And I was like, these guys must be hard as fuck. Like, this is a really cool Corey, thing. our fledgling interest in the Grateful Dead has almost the exact same origin story. My dad found a t-shirt. He was working at the high school uh, as a guidance counselor, and he found a t-shirt in the Lost and Found and thought I might like it. And I was like, oh, th these guys look tough as fuck. I bet they sound like Iron Maiden. <laughs> uh, and so then I wore the t-shirt to school one day. People asked me if I liked the Grateful Dead, and I said, yeah. And then when I actually listened to them, I was like, Oh, no. <laughs> now I have to like this music. <laughs> or else I'm a poser. Yeah. <laughs> but no, Rick Jones was... <laughs> might have been a fan of the Grateful Dead, honestly. He's a teenage delinquent who was out on a military base playing his guitar hmm. when a bomb that was sabotaged to go off by evil Soviet people, probably, mm -hmm. was about to explode. So it was a gamma bomb that Bruce Banner had been working on. So he rushed out to rescue Rick Jones, and he did, but then he got caught in the radiation from the explosion, and that's why he turned into the Hulk. And then after that, Rick Jones was a sidekick for a while. Rick Jones was also Captain Marvel's sidekick for a while. He was Captain America's sidekick for a while. He was kind of a general-purpose Avengers sidekick for a while. He just sidekicked around the universe for a long time and then ended up being the sidekick to Rom the Space Knight for a bit of time. Weird. He has a rich and storied history. He also takes part in one of my favorite stories ever, the moral of which was, if you're ever stuck in another dimension, why not do some acid and learn about yourself? <laughs> he ends up saving the day by tripping on acid in, a, in another dimension. It's like issue 42 or something of Captain Marvel, but... It's pretty great. He's backstage at a concert and somebody gives him a hit of vitamin C, which mm. is in quotes, and they are clearly giving him a drug. And then he takes it and he's like, oh, it turns out that vitamin C was really a hallucinogenic drug. Guess I'll learn more about myself and grow closer to Captain Marvel in the process, and then we'll defeat the bad guys. Whoa. Yeah, pretty great. Yeah. So yeah, that is the Hulk backup story. You ready to move on? Sure. Well, you say you're ready to move on, but uh, that glass looks pretty empty. Uh-oh. I think it's time for us to move on to the Namor story. Here's the thing I had not really thought through. Huh. These backup stories are pretty short, so we're having to drink pretty quickly. Yep. The Namor story is even shorter. Oh, boy. All right. What's in this? This is called The Pisces. Ooh. It was, its name was inspired by Lucas and Maya's conversation about the fish that saved Pittsburgh. But it's appropriate that it's the Pisces because it will be for our... Namor the Submariner story. Oh, fish face. Uh-huh. Old fish man. Yes. For those of you drinking along at home, <laughs> the Pisces is a mixture of bourbon, puntimes vermouth, which I am mispronouncing the fuck out of, sorry, chocolate bitters, and a orange peel garnish. Chocolate bitters. Mm-hmm. Mm. 
That is delicious. That is very tasty. Chocolate and orange. Yeah. It's like one of those candies. Exactly. One of those chocolate oranges. (laughs) (laughs) I guess that's what they call them. Yeah, they do. All right. Speaking of delicious, this was a delicious Namor story. (laughs) I fucking loved this. My main note is, what fun. What a dumbass. (laughs) Yep. Really, so stupid. Like, I I love him in this, by the way. Like, it, it is a super fun Golden Age Namor story. But it's him as a teenager. It continually describes him as a callow youth. Yeah, what does callow mean? I don't know that word. Okay, I've only seen it in the context of the two-word phrase callow youth, and I've seen it a bunch. I figured out from context, and I might be wrong on this, there is unfortunately literally no way for us to look up what a word means. Mm. But I I always think of it as almost a portmanteau of callous and shallow. Uh, it basically mm. means just immature. Oh, okay. I'm pretty sure. There is an outside chance that I might be wrong about that, but that sounds right, doesn't it? I like it. Yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. Plus, he tries to headbutt a giant bird in the solar plexus. (laughs) Only that giant bird is a Nazi airplane. And it hurts him. It hurts him, but not as much as it hurts that giant bird and makes it drop its eggs. Oh, did the bird drop its eggs because of the headbutt? I think so. Oh, shit. And then those... Okay, the eggs that the bird drops are bombs, Mm -hmm. and he makes the plane accidentally bomb its own airbase and then crash into that airbase itself. He rips its tail off. He does rip its tail off. Which also, pretty harsh if he still thinks it's just a bird. (laughs) Well, (laughs) right? It was a bird that was bothering him, Corey. That's true. It, It did shoot at him. And as we learn later on in other stories, earthlings are the only creatures that hunt birds for sport uh yeah the only species in the whole universe that hunts for sport yeah multiverse even yeah we'll get back to that later okay a few things struck me about this namor is just having so much fun and he is such a different character like not only was he depicted as generally a more like fun and almost contemporary character in the golden age in general but this is within the golden age him having a flashback to his youth Mm-hmm. And so he's just like, from within the context of being a more freewheeling, hot-headed character, less regal and more just like, Mah! Suffering Shad! Pickled penguins. Yeah. But it's him flashing back within that to be even more of that type of character. And it just starts off with him flying around and being like, Hey, don't you assholes wish you could fly? I can fly no. and it's the best! Ha <laughs> ha! They're not having it either. No. And then he... Yeah, fights this giant bird that is bothering him that it turns out is a Nazi airplane that he explodes. And it's great. Mm -hmm. When he lands, his mom is like, oh, I'm super proud of you. You just crashed a Nazi airplane into a base. And he's like, oh, is that what happened? Mm -hmm. Here's the thing. The fact that that is an explanation to him. And he's like, I thought it was just a giant bird. So wait, the fact that that explanation means anything to you means you know that there are Nazi airplanes that you are at war with and that they have military bases, and you never put it together that that might be what was happening? You still think that's a giant bird? Not smart. Not smart at all. But he's still learning, and the main thing that he learns at the end of this issue... Now, what did you think the moral of this story was? Nazis are terrible. Okay, that's a great moral for every story. Thank you. I think what they were going for as the moral of the story was... Namor learns humility, which clearly was a lesson which really took hold. 
Oh yeah, he does it. Does the last li- literally words of the, the story yeah. are him saying, oh, a, a hero? But, 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 but mother, I was only trying to get even with a bird that was annoying me. <laughs> Suffering Shad. That thing might have killed me. I, I guess I'm not the little tin god I thought I was. Believe me, I'll be more humble about my power to fly from here on out. And that is where Namor learned his legendary humility. Yeah, okay. I like the idea, too, that it's like, no, I'm not the little tin god I thought I was. I like that at the height of his braggadocia, he's like, I'm a little tin god. (laughs) Well, I guess we got to finish these Pisces. Oh, okay. Okay, Corey, are you ready for the third flashback story and its accompanying cocktail? Yep. Okay, for the Doctor Strange flashback story, we have a beverage called the Widowmaker. Because (laughs) Mr. Rasputin almost killed Doctor Strange. I guess he's not married to Clea, but Mm. that is be like widow making, kind of. It's a little bit of a stretch. I'm sorry. What's the word for that? A bit of a stretch? No, like uh, Starfire. Like you're about to get married to somebody, but then your partner's killed. Huh. It's got to be like some kind of a portmanteau of fiancé and widow. Mm-hmm. Weyonce? No. Fido. Fido. <laughs> Those birds are both too much fun. <laughs> yeah. No. They're, okay. What's in the Widowmaker? The Widowmaker is rye, punti mess vermouth, and yellow chartreuse and angostino bitters. Oh, this is going to be very bitter. Yes, it is. Chartreuse is the bitterest thing we got. Yeah. And rye is... For our whiskey, certainly on the less sweet side. So, for this bitter tale of guns and gunsels. What is a gunsel? Well, okay. That's actually a fun story that a reader informed me of. Hmm. A reader? Yeah, he probably reads some things. <laughs> a listener. Ah, <laughs> uh, Informed me of. I believe it was Brad Reed. This is my third cocktail in as many minutes. <laughs> it feels that way. It really does. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry, guys. But it was a piece of slang that was, I'm not going to say invented, but certainly repurposed by Dashiell Hammett uh, and gets used in a lot of like film noir type stuff. Dashiell Hammett was a legitimate, like he had been a private investigator before he became a writer. Mm. So he had this kind of air of legitimacy around him. And what he did with that was fuck with people. And like he made up the phrase Seamus, like in all of the Humphrey Bogart movies mm-hmm. and then many other movies after that, he would refer to himself as a Seamus, as a private investigator. That is not something that private investigators were ever called. Really? Yeah. Uh, he was just like, yeah, okay. And nobody questioned him because he used to be a private investigator and was a legit tough guy. Gunsel is one that gets used to mean like a hired gun hmm. or a gangster mm-hmm. type guy. Apparently it is actually from a Yiddish phrase, which meant... A, a young man who was kept around for sexual purposes. <laughs> <laughs> but it gets used in a ton of film noirs. And actually, Marv Wolfman uses it a bunch when he's going for a film noir writing style Whoa. to mean like a hired gun. The Widowmaker. <laughs> Cheers. Ooh. Ooh. Ooh, yeah. It's got a got an after afterburner to it. After a bitter burn. Yeah. Not bad, though. Uh, what did you think of the Doctor Strange story? Bad guy kind of reminded me of Yul Brenner. You mean like, Mr. Rasputin? Yeah, yeah. King and I, Rasputin. Oh, I know who Yul Brenner is. Westworld. Yeah. We've got a Westworld poster up at work right now. It's a dope poster. Mm. The tagline for it is, where nothing can ever go warring. I love Yul Brenner. 
He's pretty great. Yeah. I can see you getting that vibe off of Mr. Rasputin. Mm-hmm. I think the name Mr. Rasputin is really funny. Is he son or grandson? I forget the... Well, I don't think he's the son. Like, the real Rasputin, the historical Rasputin, would have been very, very old. Well, time and space, and, you know, he keeps blaming the the Russians for killing, like, his ancestor, Which Rasputin they did, Jr. but wasn't he a Russian, too? Yeah. Yeah, okay. I'm just trying to see and how, how far back I think that he is he probably a Russian as well. I mean... Maybe. I mean, his family might have moved. Well, he's got virtually no accent. That's true. <laughs> yeah, this one's actually written by Denny O'Neill. Well, it's scripted by Denny O'Neill and plotted by Stanley and illustrated by Steve Ditko. Mm. And I liked it a lot. The hired gun character in it, who Mr. Rasputin hires, mm-hmm. I thought actually looked a lot like Jack Kirby. Oh, really? Like pictures that I've seen of him. And I was wondering if there was like some in-house rivalry between the two and if maybe that was on purpose. They were pretty much the two most prominent illustrators at Marvel at the time, and I was a little curious if that was the, if that was on purpose or maybe I was just reading more into it. Yeah, I think it's funny that he calls himself Mr. Rasputin. Like, if you're gonna choose a title to go before that, I mean, I appreciate his honesty that like, so, well, I never got a doctorate. Mm-hmm. Like, you could probably mail order some shit at that point, or just I don't think everybody who goes by captain is a captain in the army, like or doctor. They're not all doctors. Sure. But with a name like Rasputin, I, I think rather than a, a, Do you think pre- it was just a prefix to like that. differentiate from himself from the historical Rasputin? Yeah, I suppose. I don't know. It seems awfully humble for his it, character, it right? It really so does. I would expect him more so to put like an honorific at the end, like the great or do the you terrible th- or something. Do you think it's possible that that is his given name? Is his first name is Mr. Like in Three the Hard Way. Oh, because his dad or his mom wanted, wanted him to be to treated with respect. respect. Yeah, okay. That is, I've probably talked about it on the podcast before. One of my favorite scenes in any movie is in Three the Hard Way, where Jim Kelly's character, Mr. Keys, some dirty cops are trying to plant cocaine on him. And one of them looks at his license and says, Mr. Keys, what kind of a name is Mr.? And he goes, My mama wanted me to be treated with respect. And then he beats up all the corrupt cops. And it's amazing. He kicks them good. He kicks them so good. Yep. I don't think Mr. Rasputin can do that. But I like the idea that that's his actual name. Mm-hmm. He's got serious eyebrows. He does have very serious eyebrows. Those eyebrows mean business. Mm-hmm. And he is a master of both the occult and... Science. Scientific knowledge. Mm. Now, do you think that scientific knowledge is exclusively... I own a gun. That seems to be the only science <laughs> he makes any use of. And it is also apparently Doctor Strange's one weakness is <laughs> he hates being shot. He just, like, he. it doesn't occur to him that that could be a thing that would happen. Yeah. It really does kind of bring to mind to me the idea that there are so many villains who their super secret villain power or something is that they have created a device that can kill a person from a distance. Kind of on that scale. And it's basically like, so if you just had a gun, that's your supervillain power. Mm-hmm. Like, okay, it's a ray gun, but you can use it to kill one person at a time. A gun can do that. Mm-hmm. Your superpower is you have a gun. And that's pretty much Rasputin, Mr. Rasputin. I'm sorry. I want to give him his proper just, respect. Just... That is Mr. Rasputin's primary power. He can also make a ghost happen mm-hmm. and hypnotize people. Mm-hmm. But mostly, he has a gun. He's more of an illusionist, it seems like. Well, he makes use of the illusions of Icon, Mm -hmm. which, big deal. And Doctor Strange sees that he's doing that and is like, whoa, 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 buddy. I see that he's doing that. 
I must be cautious that he is using that forbidden spell. Now, how does he display that caution? He just busts in. Yeah, he appears immediately in front of him and says, What's happening and what's your name? That is his immediate go-to after saying, I must be cautious. I like also that I think this is the one where after he says that, they have some more exchange of words and Dr. Strange sends it with, I am your master! (laughs) Yeah. He also has a thing where when his astral form is attacking Mr. Rasputin, he does it all through his cloak of levitation. Mm-hmm. And he basically just has his cloak choke the dude out, mm-hmm. which is pretty badass. That was. But when he does it, he orders his cloak to attack. And the way he phrases that is, cloak, attack. But when I first read it, I read it as him just saying, I will do this. Cloak attack. <laughs> A good name for a spell. Yeah. To the point. It, it got the job done. And then he does the cloak choke. Cloak choke. Uh-huh. Like pretty that. good. Pretty good. I think of all of them, Mr. Rasputin was my favorite bad guy in any of these stories. Why is that? There was just something about him I liked. I think Denny O'Neill does a good job scripting villain dialogue. He seemed sinister and full of himself. He had a line, too, where I think Doctor Strange sees the gun and he's like, A gun? That's a coward's weapon. He's like, I never claimed to be a brave man. Mm-hmm. Just an efficient one. Mm-hmm. I'm like, yeah, that's properly villainous. Pretty tough. And I like that his name's Mr. Rasputin. Pretty good. Pretty good indeed. Any further thoughts on the Doctor Strange story? I think it's weird that he likes the hospital. (laughs) He loves hanging out at the hospital. I did also think it is worth mentioning that in the comic, which was published in 66, I think it was, his doctor in the hospital, and they don't comment on it or focus on it, but his doctor is black. And I think that's pretty cool. Mm. It was kind of nice to see, and honestly, I was surprised to see it in a comic book that came out this early on. There was also that thing that we have all the time with the way that powers work in comics, where at the end of it, he's just like, I will mentally control them into standing there docile until the cops show up, and then they'll admit everything that they've done wrong. Yeah. Like, why didn't you just do that at the beginning? Yeah, that is a really good point. I guess maybe he wanted them to learn their lesson first. The cops were like, man, this is crazy. These guys are just standing there and they're telling us well, all these and, things. And he also, like, it had been building this tension to, like, oh, this hired gun is going to show up in Doctor Strange's hospital room and shoot him. How is he going to deal with that? And then you find out, like, he was never in any danger. As soon as the gunman showed up, the Eye of Agamotto that his body was wearing while his astral self was off doing the cloak choke, it just automatically hypnotized the guy and held him in check until Doctor Strange got back into his body. So... Uh, that seemed kind of a kind of a sellout move. I did like how it's illustrated, and I really like how I really like Ditko's illustration. It's really different than a lot of stuff that you see. The storytelling flows really well in it, and I like the way he does spells and shit and like dimensional portals and stuff. And it was cool. I dug it. Pretty good. Pretty good. What do you think the moral was? Moral: um, gun is a coward's weapon. Yes, got it in one. Thank you. All right. Well, let's finish our Widowmakers. Oh, Jesus. I know. <laughs> you made too much booze. <laughs> so, we are now moving on to a cocktail that I call the Satriani. <laughs> it is called the Satriani solely because it is accompanying a Silver Surfer story. And there was a Joe Satriani album called Surfing with the Alien. And Peggy was the guitar music type. Oh, no, I'm not a Joe Satriani fan. I'm not a G3 fan. Ingve Malmsteen fan? Not particularly. Okay. I mean, I'm a big fan of B3, the bass playing equivalent of that, which was Stu Ham's band. <laughs> <laughs> this cocktail smells good. Thank you. Uh, yes, this cocktail, the Satriani, is bourbon, a splash of Kahlua, 
orange bitters, and orange peel, and cinnamon. Wow. And a squeeze of orange. Oh. Yeah. All right. You ready to surf with the alien? Let's. All right. Oh, mm. this is a good fall cocktail. So, what'd you think of the Silver Surfer story? Let's see. Well, he did a bad job. Oh, yeah. It is some goofy malarkey. And <laughs> the Silver Surfer is just a straight-up condescending idiot in this whole story. He really is. I do like that it's the Lucha Libre version. It is. It the is. The, yeah, the earlier. It's actually illustrated by Kirby. And I had not realized how much the Bob Brown version of it that I was kind of talking shit about mm -hmm. is really in line with the original Kirby version. This is a story that was from the Fantastic Four Annual Number 5, where it first appeared in 1967. I kind of liked the story, but a very, very bare-bones synopsis of this story is Silver Surfacing. The computer was sad, so I turned it into a super ugly dude, but then he was a dick, so I turned him into a clock. Anyway. <laughs> a clock? Yeah. Am I remembering it wrong? Probably. Oh, shit. <laughs> <laughs> I thought he just made him, like, disappear into the ether. No, he turned him into a clock. He totally did. Wow. That's, now, now we get an ugly <laughs> clock. Thanks a lot, surfer. Yeah, way to go. Sheesh. <laughs> yeah, so he basically shows up, and he's doing his thing where he's trapped on Earth, and he's surfing around, and some duck hunters are hunting ducks, and he gets into their midst, and is just like, oh, these guys are shooting at me. Fuck these guys. And he zaps the shit out of them, and then it's like, oh, they were shooting at these ducks. And then goes on this little, humans are the shittiest. It's like, okay, you're not wrong, but really duck hunting is the worst example of that that you're finding? Yeah, and also, I mean, I don't know, maybe things are different between the DCU and, and Marvel, but based on what goes on over there, humans aren't the only jerks no, in the galaxy. No, and that was the other thing that I definitely wanted to talk about, because humans are not the only... He says explicitly, like, in all of the cosmos, humans are the only creatures who hunt for sport. I'm pretty sure that is not the case. Can't like, be. I have vague memories of reading some Silver Surfer comics and having him come across all manner of alien douchebags. Mm -hmm. What about Predators? That's right. I was just going to say I mean, I don't think they're not, like, Marvel-specific, but there are things like Predators. And I'm pretty sure, like, the Grandmaster and the Collector and those dudes, like, they probably do some sport hunting, even if they don't call it that. There is plenty of interstellar douchebags. I'm not saying humans are a bed of roses. I am not a fan of humanity in general. But Surfer was talking out of his silver butt on this one. He really was. So then he does that, and then he's like, um, th there's a soul in great pain nearby. And he, he finds this computer named Quasimodo that was created by the Mad Thinker. Are you familiar with the Mad Thinker at all? He's a Marvel character. He's generally a Fantastic Four villain. He's kind of... I read it wrong. I read it as Tinkerer. No, no, no. Tinkerer, I think, is a different guy. And oh. Tinkler is a different guy. <laughs> He's the wizard's arch foe. <laughs> <laughs> so the Mad Thinker is basically... I like to think of him as being like, you're getting into Dungeons and Dragons now, right? Well, it's been... You're playing. You're playing Dungeons decades, and Dragons yes. for a while now. Yep. He's what I like to think of as chaotic neutral. Mm. He's like super smart and he is kind of the personification of coulda disregarding shoulda. Mm -hmm. Like he's like, well, I'm going to see if I can do this thing, this crazy thing. Yep, turns out I can because I'm real, real smart. So he makes this crazy supercomputer that becomes self-aware. Silver Surfer shows up, turns it into a dude, but it's a super ugly dude. And then it starts trying to kill everybody. And then he's like, oh, don't try to kill everybody. 
Like, th there's so much about this. Silver Surfer's powers just being, like, the power cosmic, maybe even more so than magnetism, is just like, eh, I can do whatever. Mm -hmm. I, yeah. got, I got crazy whatever powers. He does. I can turn a computer into a dude. But it's gonna be an ugly dude. Well, it's a computer was named Quasimodo to begin with. Okay, but it was named Quasimodo for a reason, Corey. A reason that makes no goddamn sense. Well, it makes perfect sense. How does it? Because Quasimodo is short for quasi-motivational destruct organism. Yeah, but what is quasi-motivational destruct organism? He's not that motivated. <laughs> he's not? Oh, that's why it's quasi. He's like he's being like, motivated, but he's not that motivated. I seem to be motivated to destroy things, but not really. But, man, not if there's something good on TV. But he really is, because... He seems pretty motivated. Yeah, once he gets into his humanoid body, he's like, I'm so ugly, I'm mad. Yeah. Poof. He is really ugly, too. Do you think maybe his mistake was introducing himself as Quasimodo to Silver Surfer? And Silver Surfer just had, like, background, like... Hunchback and Notre Dame shit going on. And it's like, oh, I know what Quasimodo's look like. When I turn this into a dude, I'm going to make him look like Quasimodo. No, because the computer is drawn to have an ugly bug-eyed face before yeah. Surfer shows up. It was the thinker was just being a dick. Yeah. Can I make a crazy, ugly computer, man? Yep, turns out I can. Anyway, I'm off. Yep. That's the mad thinker for you. Mm, jerk. Um, so what do you think the moral of this story was? Well, at first I was thinking ugly people are angry. Sure. But now I'm thinking maybe it's puns are bad. Oh, because of the Quasimodo thing? Mm -hmm. You think that's the origin of all of this malarkey? I think the Tinkerer came up with the big name first, the Quasi-Motivational Destruct. And then, like, worked thing. backwards from yeah. there. And, and it's like, like, oh, that sounds like Quasimodo. I'll put an Okay, he should look it. like Quasimodo. Hmm. My moral was... Beware of AIs, because what if they're uggos? So, okay, we're pretty Pretty close. close pretty close. <laughs> well, are you ready to move on to the... <laughs> oh, boy, giant size indeed. Giant you ready size. to move on to the... What are they called? <laughs> minutias. You ready to move on to the minutia? Yep. All right. Hit it, Rick. We got minutia. It's not the biggest part, it's just minutia. Like Corey eating farts, we got minutia. Time to sweat the small stuff. Thanks, Rick. Yep. Whew. 80 page giant. Indeed. What do you want to start with? Uh, there was a uh, an outfit that I thought was pretty rad. Okay, so sartorially speaking, what was that outfit, Corey? It was uh, Yul Brenner's purple get up. Okay, Mr. Rasputin's gear. Mr. Rasputin. What, what stood out to you about it? Yeah, his sleeves... Whatever. They're like semaphore flags almost. It's like the equivalent of like if sleeves were bell-bottoms. Yeah. But like so extreme that when his arms are outstretched... They're they just big triangles, reach man. Reach to his knees. Yeah. It's pretty cool. It's, You're right. I hadn't even really noticed that. That is a good look. He's got a deep purple cloak with like a gold belt. Mm-hmm. It's a very badass, wizardly kind of... Yeah, it's a nice mixture of form-fitting, but then got the, like, serious wizard drape going on. Mm -hmm. It's a good look. Yeah, yeah. Not bad. It's appropriate for... Not his... bad, Mr. Rasputin. You'll do just fine. I wanted to talk real quick about Clea's outfit. I think it's badass. Uh, we've seen it before, but not in a while. And I uh, like the way that she's got, like, the crazy cosmic leggings thing going on, where it's kind of... Is that her usual getup? I think it's pretty much her usual getup. 
It looks more like the top part of her is latex. Well, okay, yeah. I think that's Starlin's illustration style. It looks less like clothes and more like she was just, just drawn nude and then colored. The legs are pretty rad. But though. the leg, the leggings are fucking rad, and that's the main thing that I wanted to focus on. It's just these really cool-looking, weird cosmic-looking designs that are red and black that are uh, adorning her tights, and I like them. Mm-hmm. Pretty good. Like I had another... Yoga. Yes, they are like yoga pants. Before yoga call. pants. Yeah. She was a real trendsetter. Also, I like the fact that the Hulk used to wear a shirt. Like, he had a tattered, like, Tarzan-looking shirt. Mm-hmm. But I like the idea that, like, when he hulked out of his clothes, he didn't bother to clean up the trimmings on it. It was just like, yeah, I've got unintentional shorts, but I've also got an unintentional Tarzan chest hammock. You know? <laughs> okay, yeah, I just made that phrase up. I've had four cocktails within the course of an hour. <laughs> yep. They were pretty big. Yep. Said Tarzan chest hammock. Okay. Yeah. Was a pretty good look for the Hulk. Sure. Let's talk sound effects. <laughs> All right. Uh, what was your favorite sound effect? Oh, man, there are so many, but I'm just going to go with the one from uh, when Namor tries to headbutt the solar plexus of that bird that was bugging him. All right. What was that? It's a compound sound effect Ooh. of his head hitting the belly of the airplane and his reaction to it, and it is bang yow! Bang yow? Yeah. Bang yow sounds cool. Yep. That sounds like it might be like a Thai food. <laughs> I- I'll have the bang yow. Yeah, mild? Yeah. Okay. Mild with chicken. <laughs> bang yow. Bang yow. I had a couple to choose from. It came down to three of them. We got the plop from page 22, <laughs> where a disappearing hulk drops his giant Henry VIII turkey leg. It's got to be a cow leg, maybe. Because, was... like, to scale, I kept trying to imagine the size of a turkey that could create a leg like that. Maybe it was a leg of mutton. It looked like a, just a giant turkey leg. You're going to have to ask Wong. I am. He was the culinary master behind the repast that the Hulk enjoyed so much. Mm-hmm. Which I, I really did like that. Yeah, he looked pretty happy. So he looked pretty happy, and, and Hulk said, Wong made this? Then Wong is Hulk's friend, too. And Doctor Strange just goes, Oh, yes, Hulk, we're all your friends. Now, when this story took place, that is like within an hour of Doctor Strange being like, yes, we've been trying to tell you for months that we're friends. I'm so happy you understand that we're friends now. Mm-hmm. To him basically just being like, oh, God, yes, we're friends, Hulk. We fucking get it. Yeah, no, he, you know, Doctor Strange. He's Doctor Strange. But when Hulk drops his, let's say it's probably an ostrich leg. Why not? But he Wong's drops it. It makes a somewhere. plop, but the way that the plop is lettered, it looks like it's making a very wet plop noise. Because <laughs> the word is just kind of dripping at the bottom. And it's just like a big wet plop lets you know that that ostrich leg is just juicy. It's probably broasted. Roasted and broiled? I don't know what that word means, but I've seen it applied to chicken and it sounds delicious. <laughs> So he's eating that broasted ostrich leg. Means it's made by some dude in a baseball hat. No, no, that would be, that would just be broded. <laughs> I don't know. But yeah, I love the big wet plop of that of that ostrich leg <laughs> in the ground. Of course you do. The other one that I chose is Zach, and that is the noise that it makes when Silver Surfer zaps some duck hunters with his power cosmic. Now, maybe he was just trying to turn them into humans from computers, Mm. but it makes a cool noise, and it's like, the way that it's illustrated is really dynamic looking. Yeah, the way that the word Zack is written 
is really nice. There's some sound effects that seem like they are done by the letterer and some that seem like they are done by the artist, and this one definitely looks more like it was done by the artist than the letterer, and I thought it was really cool. The other one that I liked a lot is on page 56. (laughs) (laughs) But yeah, it is Quasimodo blowing up a fire hydrant for some reason. Oh, I know the reason. It says right in the panel. I was born to destroy and I must be true to my destiny. Jerk. And so, bonk, blows up a fire hydrant. Pretty Mm. good. Every Defenders comic book has a sucker. A character who, to quote the fat boys in Crush Groove, just gotta be a sucker and go against their previously established characterization or motivation in a way that furthers the plot. In this issue, who just had to be a sucker? Well, with this goofball conglomeration of very old stories and a thin narrative to weave them all together, it was difficult for me to find a sucker. I understand, because it's not necessarily that they're being written out of character, but that they have been written 8 to 12 years previous and were written differently then. Therefore, I had to go with one that didn't have the backstory, and I chose Val because I'm used to seeing her as a person of action. Yes. And getting things done, and it's not her fault that she was written this way, but I feel like she hung back a lot more than Val normally would have, and that was the vehicle which kind of was used to drive the whole thing forward. Yeah, I get that. That actually makes a lot of sense. I went with Steve Strange because he had the opportunity to wipe somebody's memory and he passed (laughs) on it, and that is not a very Doctor Strange thing to do. He loves doing the Men in Black trick. He really does. He must hate booze more. I suppose so. Which is which is funny because I imagine him like sitting I by think the fire, like snifter a brandy. Yep. Yeah. Exactly. I think, like all right-thinking people, Doctor Strange would very much enjoy this Satriani that we are enjoying. It was a spectacular Satriani. All right. So, what were the best words in this issue? Uh, there, there were was, a lot to choose there from. Were so many words. For me, it came down to two main choices. There were some really good ones. One of my favorites was definitely from the Namor story, and that was on page 25. I think this made us both laugh out loud when we read it. Great pickled penguins. Those eggs hatched in a hurry. Now I suppose all the little chickadees will be looking for their mama, but I've got news for them. And that's when he rips the plane's tail off so that it can't fly. I had the same choice. (laughs) (laughs) For the same reasons, I'm assuming, because that is just really funny and also kind of horrifying that he thinks this bird is trying to have children, so he rips its tail off. That's Namor. Yep. Well, when he was a callow youth. No, he really learned his lesson, and now he's so humble. He he is. He learned humility. He could have been killed. Yeah. Hmm. You got another uh, favorite words? I have a few. We can stick with Namor for a minute. Okay. And I really liked, I think it was just the kind of golden age goofery of all the dialogue in this, but I think the expression dirty bird, <laughs> it's a shame that that's fallen out of out of favor with the youth. And uh, there's a, a part on page 24 where he explains, well, I'll be a dirty bird. Well, I'll be a dirty bird. It is a bird. The biggest, most horrible bird I've ever seen. Well, big or not, no mere bird is going to sting me. I'll mow him down. Birds don't sting. Yep. And Namor's being a dummy. He really is. I think I probably mentioned this on the podcast before, but the Muhammad Ali phrase, the float like a butterfly, sting like a bee. Mm-hmm. I love Muhammad Ali. It's a really good phrase. You know what else floats like a butterfly? A bee. So he could have just said, 
float like a bee, also sting like a bee. Or just shortened it to, you know, I'm a lot like a bee. No, no, no. That ruins the metaphor because a a butterfly is like Oh, because of how pretty he is? Yeah, graceful and beautiful and it dances around. I think bumblebees are pretty. Are pretty. I like them too, but I I think... Yeah, I I guess. I think it's a good metaphor. I think think their mode of flight is pretty similar to a butterfly. All right. And that they have wings. (laughs) Well, and and that it's just kind of like a floaty, like, it's not like they move like bullets. They, they like, they kind of, they bumble around. They look like trunks. Mm -hmm. So does a butterfly. True. Yeah. Uh, (laughs) (laughs) Uh, There's more words. There sure are. I want to go with, speaking of drunks, page two. Shoot, you'd think they'd give you more of the stuff for a whole 40 cents. What a crummy. Then the defenders show up. Rip off? Oh, yow. Salvation Army, here I come. I ain't ever gonna touch a drop again. And then Thought Bubble. Except on special special occasions. occasions. (laughs) Everything about that is great. I love the cliche of, I see something strange, rub my eyes, rub my eyes, rub my eyes, throw the flask over my shoulder. I'm never going to drink again. Mm -hmm. The execution of it there, delightful. Yep. And on. Except on special occasions. Do you have any other favorite words? I did. I liked what this one I feel like communicates. Despite all the soul searching and kind of psychological research, I imagine that the Silver Surfer has done. (laughs) He displays a really poor understanding of how to deal with intelligent beings. Okay. Including computer people. Sure. And when he first encounters... Quasimodo. Quasimodo, he says, Why are you in such a strange predicament? (laughs) Which, oh boy! I kind of want to start saying how to people like <laughs> somebody really needs help. Oh man! In nice so many situations, why is the least helpful question you can ask? It's the least helpful. It doesn't. My standard answer when whenever I do something stupid and somebody says, "Why did you do that?" It's like, okay, first of all, that's not the question you need to be asking right now. So my standard answer whenever anybody asks why I did anything is, I say, "I thought it'd be funny." Sometimes that works. Yeah, it usually doesn't. <laughs> not always, not always. It is a surprising <laughs> amount of time the actual answer for why I have done something very stupid. Why did you punch your brother in the spine? <laughs> We've told that story before. I believe so. And once again, Corey, I'm sorry. And I really did think it would be funny. It was a little bit funny. It was it pretty just, funny. It also hurt a lot. Yeah, I know. I'm sorry. It's okay. Favorite panel. Oh, there were so many panels. There really were. There were 80 pages worth of panels. Yeah. Considering that some of the older comics were done on like a traditional nine panel grid, that is a tremendous amount of panels. It really is. I've got a few. I've got like four of them. So why don't I start first? I have four also. Okay. On on page three, I got Hulk in the eyeball. It's the Hulk's face in the center of an eyeball and it's in the interstitial. So it's illustrated by Jim Starlin. (laughs) Yeah, that is It is awesome that is awesome what's one of yours i have um page 16 the hulk training montage okay is it when he's in the werewolf container no oh no oh it's it's rick going through the motions with them your hand your hand hulk raise your hands (laughs) now sit down that's it sit it's impossible but it's true he obeys my every command and hulk's face at that point. He is not happy about that situation. Super bummed Oh, out. God, and it's followed by Rick making him... I was honestly relieved when I reread it and realized that he was making him bow down so that Rick could jump on his shoulders 
because it really makes it look like he's just like, oh, I can make the Hulk do whatever I want. Kneel down before me. I am Rick Jones. Yep. Pretty yeah. bad. Also kind of funny. Pretty funny. I had a couple of panels off page 22. One was... In the background, it's a panel of just the Hulk's very angry face as illustrated by Jim Starlin. But in the foreground, it is Clea zapping Val and Val seemingly finding it very relaxing to be zapped. She's got her like hands folded behind her head as Clea is blasting her with pink energy. And it's like she is saying like, oh, this book of Vashanti you're reading is so relaxing. Yep. And yeah, once again, they are having another like side-eyed boob fight. Yep. It's a really weird panel and I really liked it. And the other panel from that page that I love is directly below it. And it is the Hulk, Henry the Eighthing the fuck out, eating his ostrich leg. Well, Steve has never looked more emo standing right next to him with a full-on pointy-eared Dracula cape. I had the same one. It's a great panel. Yep, Hulk drumstick. Yep. And the other one that I had is on page 53. And it is what I called... The Jack Kirby Scooby-Doo Monster. It is the page in which Silver Surfer turns Quasimodo into a humanoid. And it, it is really cool looking. It is a full page splash. It is the most Kirby crackle scene maybe I've ever seen. And Quasimodo, as he is changing, looks like the electricity monster from the beginning of Scooby-Doo. And it's really badass. I had the same one and I called it Super Magic. Pretty good. So, every issue of a Defenders comic has a best defender and a worst offender. In this comic book, who is the worst offender? The worst offender in this comic book was the Silver Surfer because he did a terrible job. He really did. I had a few to choose from and as I was going through it, I was like, is it Clea? She does a pretty bad job. She, you know, is kind of the MacGuffin that makes all of the bad things come alive again, sort of. Is it Rick Jones? He made a big mistake in trusting the military-industrial complex and betraying his best friend, the Hulk. Mm -hmm. Is it Doctor Strange? He clearly has mislabeled his books. He has a crappy Dewey Decimal System. He is Clea's teacher. He has not been doing his job as a teacher, possibly because he is sleeping with his star pupil. Not a great look, but... <laughs> I ended up going with Silver Surfer because you are absolutely right. He does a terrible job. He's so bad. He's so bad. Riding around, moralizing, and doing things just willy-nilly, completely non-thinking about what their consequences people are. People got hurt, be. man. A lot of people got hurt. He now And now we all have to look at an ugly-ass fucking statue. Hope clock. people tear that statue clock down. Me too. Man, fuck that thing. Yep. Conversely, who was the best defender? So, initially, I had picked one, which is going to have to be the runner-up. Okay. But it was Namor, because he fucking cracked me up so bad. I went with Namor, because he beat up a Nazi plane, and he killed a lot of Nazis. I know. And that made me happy, and he cracked me up too. So, my choice is Namor. What trumped Namor for you? So, my choice was initially Namor as well. But without the Hulk, there would be no Namor because the Hulk saved Namor at the end when they were having their Lost in Space montage. I didn't even notice. Yeah, he caught him and Namor's like, what's happening? And the Hulk's like, All right, don't worry about it, man. Oh, does he call him Fishman? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, I vaguely remember that. It was honestly the whole third act of the clip show interstitial bits 
it was like the third act of a Philip K. Dick book or a Warren Ellis story or a Grant Morrison story where it's just like, you get all of the setup. Yeah, exactly. It it was like, (laughs) you get two acts of setup and character development. And then it's like, oh man, he's written this really interesting story. I don't know how these people are going to get out of this predicament. How do things tie up? And it's just like, yeah, fuck it. I'm bored. Everybody did hallucinogens. Things are crazy. Weird cosmic shit happens. The end. Mm -hmm. And I was immediately just like, I don't know what the fuck just happened. I guess it looks like they all just decided they wanted to go home, so they went home. Man, you only read one of these things today, too. <laughs> yeah, sorry. Does it happen in the other one, too? Kind of. Oh, shit. <laughs> Is the other one a clip show, too? Uh, no, it's it's not, but... Yeah, okay, well, we'll, we'll, we'll get to it. Yeah. We'll get to it. No spoilers. Boy. Well, that is giant-sized Defenders for you. I think we finally made it through. Think this so. is going to be a bear to edit. Okay, so, one last note. Due to the largesse of our Patreon donors, we not only have been bringing you this giant sized defenders issue and we'll bring you another we'll bring you all the giant sized defenders we're going to do the new teen titans annuals as well thank you so much for your generous donations but we also brought back a segment called what's aqualad probably up to and introduced a segment that is many variations of wong's name and what wong is doing Mm. now we have already covered what happened in july of 1974 and we've specifically covered what wong was doing in that so Corey, you're off the hook. You don't need to come up with one. Thank you. I developed a workaround Mm. because I want to give these people their money's worth. And despite this crazy-ass, long-ass episode that we're doing, which is, it's going to be a real bear to edit. Yeah, a veritable bear. (laughs) It's going to be a veritable bear. I decided I wanted to give them a little extra bang for their buck, so I figured out a workaround. Okay. Which I call a long time ago, far away. (laughs) Now, we know what Wong was doing in July of 1974. I don't remember what it was. Do you? Had something to do with movies. Oh, yeah, and you being born and a rift in time and Tigra. It was complicated. It was very complicated. But one of these reprints happened in August of 1955. That is when the Namor story was first published. That's so, so long ago. It was a long time ago. <laughs> it really was. And far away in his hometown, Wong was just a little kid. Now, we all know the story of how when he was still a child, Wong was sent away and given to the Ancient One to train and really dedicated his life to him. And how his father was Hamir the Hermit, who was also a very powerful magician and a disciple of the Ancient One. We all know that, Corey, right? Right. Do you know why? No. Because in August of 1955, Wong was annoying the shit out of his dad. Do you know why he was doing that? It's because he was a kid? Yes, and it was because he was a kid who had the first edition of the newly published, for the very first time, Guinness Book of World Records. (laughs) (laughs) And much like when I was a little kid and first got my hands on a Guinness Book of World Records, he annoyed the fuck out of his parents. Right. Wouldn't stop reading to him out of it. So eventually, Hamir is like, who at the time was just known as Hamir the regular guy, Mm -hmm. was like, I can't fucking listen to this anymore. Uh, Wong, turns out you got a crazy destiny in front of you. I just read this prophecy. Uh, You gotta go into the mountains in the Himalayas and train with the Ancient One. So sorry, so sorry. And I gotta go live off by myself where I can't have fucking fun facts about the world's fattest twins riding on mopeds. That's the shoved first in my thing face all goddamn day. Yep. 
I can't listen to another fact about that guy with the biggest beard made out of bees. The guy, that guy who just lives down the street and has the longest fingernails in the world. Yeah, I know the guy. You can shut up about him, Wong. I'm going to go live on a mountaintop by myself. I'm going to go. I'm going to stop calling myself Hamir the regular guy. That really didn't have the same ring to it. I'm looking for something a little more alliterative. I'm now going to be Hamir the Hermit. And you got to go stay with the Ancient One, Wong. It's a prophecy. Man, believe me, if it was me, I'd love to stay here and listen to your Guinness Book of World Record fun facts for the rest of my life. But uh, prophecy, what can you do? Sorry. Sorry, buddy. <laughs> and that is what happened a long, long time ago. Very far away. That is good to know. <laughs> It makes perfect sense. It really does, doesn't it? Yep. Thank you so much for listening on this very special <laughs> and very alcohol-influenced episode. So coherent. Oh, boy. The, the coherency is just oozing off of me like ostrich drippings off of a juicy, juicy, roasted ostrich thigh that the Hulk was eating. That says it all. It really does. Thank you so much for listening. <laughs> I think maybe the next giant size one we do, we will not do a flight of Manhattan. But I don't know. know. We'll see how this comes (laughs) out. (laughs) Thanks for bearing with us. If you would like to get in touch with us, you can do so at ttwasteland at (laughs) gmail.com. Is that true? No, you did it right. Okay. (laughs) I assumed I had fucked that up. Thank you. Uh, we are on iTunes and Stitcher and anywhere you get your podcasts. Uh, if you would like to subscribe and leave us a positive review, that would be a real goddamn treat for me and I would appreciate it. You can even lie. Uh, (laughs) Nobody's policing you, man. If you're only feeling three stars, but you leave five, thanks, man. It's good. It's great. Mm. I love you. It's true. It's true. I'm on Twitter at TTWasteland underscore. Um, (laughs) All up over the internet. We got a Facebook page. And if you can't find me in any of those places, just just look in your heart because I'll be there waving at you. Hi, it's me, Hub. I live in your heart. It's nice here. It's large four chambers because you're a mammal. I'm assuming all of our listeners are mammals. That's perhaps not fair of me. As far as we know. As far as we know, but hey, you know what? If you're a lizard man and you're listening to this and you don't have a large four-chambered heart, I mean no disrespect, but stop listening. <laughs> just... I don't want no goddamn lizard men listening to this episode. Just... It's not for you. I'm sorry. That's unnecessarily harsh. <laughs> Corey, do you know what the lizard men have been doing? Uh, wait, which which one? Which guys? Who? The lizard men. <laughs> <laughs> Some bad shit. Yeah. Oh, okay. Yeah, they've been doing bad shit, Corey. Oh, I don't like that. No. No, I mean... Stop doing look, it, guys. I don't want to get too political. I've been <laughs> accused of that before. But I am against bad shit. Yeah. I don't like it, and I wish people would stop doing it. Yeah, me too. So, okay. Yeah. Well, lizard guys are doing that? No. Yeah. None of this for you. I'm sorry. I'm sorry, lizard people. Don't be but sorry. But you're terrible. <laughs> <laughs> Um, (laughs) thank you so much for listening non-lizard people (laughs) thank you for listening and thank you for bearing with us on this very special episode of tighten up the defense
I'm Hub. And I love you very much. If you'd like to give us some money so that we can do more weird shit like this, you can do that at TT Wasteland. Nope. You can do so <laughs> at patreon.com backslash TT Wasteland. Thank you. Thanks. Bye. <laughs> Bye. <laughs> It's really weird. Was it broken? I I think it must be. <laughs> that was was a lot of booze. Yeah, it was. <laughs> yeah, let's try to wrap this up before it all kicks in. <laughs> oh, yes. Good luck. Yeah. Thanks. Mm-hmm.